It's a very great pleasure I take in introducing our first guest of the program to you this morning. He, along with a couple of colleagues at the University of Toronto and the University of Guelph, have co-written a piece at theconversation.com entitled Training Our Immune Systems, Why We Should Insist on a High-Quality COVID-19 Vaccine. The author, principal author of this piece is Dr. Byram Bridal, who is an associate professor of viral immunology at uh, the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph in Ontario. Dr. Bridal, Byram, good morning, sir, and welcome. Uh, hi, Sterling. Uh, yes, it's my pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us. For the benefit of those who are, shall we say, novices to the science, uh, talk to us about exactly what it is you do. You are a viral immunologist, sir. What do you do? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm trained, uh, at, my specialization is in immunology as well as virology. So that's, much, that's very, quite common these days in science to have people uh, overlap in fields with all the collaborative efforts that go on. Sure. So yeah, I specialize both in virology, so the study of viruses, and uh, immunology, which is uh, the study of our immune system, which is the, uh, what we're all interested in right now and trying to stimulate with vaccines to protect ourselves from the SARS coronavirus 2, which is the causative agent of COVID-19. Now, you've been around for a while, and you have studied viruses for a while. And were you around, for example, during the SARS crisis a few years back, Dr. Bridal? Yes, I was. I was not engaged in active uh, research, certainly not in vaccine development at the time, but uh, certainly I did experience that, yes. So, again, again, this all adds to our, our knowledge bank in terms of the next virus. What have we learned from the previous, uh, and I, I hesitate to use the word pandemic, because with SARS and H1N1, they were, they were global uh, viruses that affected large amounts of population, but I don't think to the extent that COVID-19 has. However, they have been scientifically instructive. What lessons have we learned? Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Technically, those were not uh, declared pandemics because they weren't of the uh, uh, the scope that the current COVID-19 is. Right. Uh, however, yeah, so what's interesting in terms of, um, uh, so the, you mentioned two viruses there, the, the coronavirus and then the influenza virus. Right. In, ter- in terms of the coronaviruses, uh, what we've learned essentially, well, one, one of the things that's important to note is indeed there was the original SARS coronavirus, and um, that outbreak occurred uh, about, about 17 years ago. And then since then, we've also had a second highly pathogenic uh, coronavirus come through prior to the current one, and that was the MERS coronavirus, right, yes. Middle, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Right. And, uh, and now, of course, we have the SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, so one of the things that it tells us is that, uh, unfortunately, we can probably expect to have to deal with a uh, severely pathogenic coronavirus uh, possibly every approximate decade in the future. Um, So what we need to be learning from the historical experiences with the previous two and the current one is that we need to essentially stick to the plan right now with our research programs for developing vaccines so that we're actually properly prepared for the next one. Interesting. The yeah. only reason we're actually, historically, uh, it's actually the MERS coronavirus too. So what, what happened with the SARS coronavirus is once that outbreak was in the rearview mirror, uh, most of the research on vaccine development for severely pathogenic coronaviruses shut down. Uh-huh. And, it shut, and it shut down because there was no financial incentive to keep it going. 
the research enterprise usually focuses on current problems, not historical problems. And secondly, if you think about it, uh, the way that uh, people, you know, companies, uh, the way they recover the research and development costs, if they're in the vaccine development industry, is through selling doses of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And if, if the disease is now an historical disease, there's going to be no opportunity to recover their research and development costs. So essentially, they're going to shut down the research programs for that particular pathogen. However, then when the MERS coronavirus uh, came out, one of the uh, notable things about the MERS coronavirus is that we still have problems with the MERS coronavirus. So there are still cases of that virus. It's just we don't experience that in North America. However, since there are still cases, companies that started developing vaccines, so basically the vaccine development programs had to start from scratch again when the MERS coronavirus emerged. But because there are still currently cases, research has continued. And so what's interesting is those companies, those companies that were continuing to develop them, they're among the leaders with the current vaccine development program for the COVID-19 because they had vaccines under development for the MERS coronavirus. Sure. Okay. And, but what we definitely need to learn from this is regardless of the outcome of the current pandemic. So what I mean by that is maybe this pandemic, should it burn itself out without a vaccine to help us? accomplish that, we need to follow through and make sure that all of the current vaccine technologies that we have invested billions of dollars into actually see that we get them to the finish line. Mm -hmm. And then what would happen ideally is the scientific community would then vet uh, over the next several years all of these promising technologies and figure out which ones are actually the best technologies and then so we can have a short list of these technologies to fall upon when we have to deal with the next major pathogenic coronavirus. Yeah, interesting stuff, Dr. Bridal, and a couple of things out of that. Of course, the government of Canada had uh, s- told its uh, uh, team that was, uh, uh, from the Health Canada Ministry perspective, supposed to be in charge of uh, uh, keeping the nation aware of and prepared for pandemics. They were told to stand down uh, a short while before this one occurred. But what you one of the things that you've just said that intrigues me the most, perhaps, is a scientist recognizing a pattern. And now you're predicting, and I think quite accurately, that it's quite reasonable. In fact, it's proper for North Americans and probably the people of the world to anticipate a viral outbreak to the tune of a COVID-type impact once a decade going forward. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, of course, sounds a bit... Uh fearful, but, uh, but it's probably the reality. And, and interestingly, um, you had mentioned earlier on uh, H1N1, which is a type of influenza virus. Right. And so the, so the issue, the reason why this is likely going to be an, an ongoing issue for the current generations um, is the coronavirus uh, is able to mutate. So the viruses that, that are most prone to causing these kind of dangerous outbreaks are those that are able to mutate uh, quite efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, the thought is that the current outbreak was caused by a bat coronavirus recombining its genetic material randomly with a human coronavirus. And this occurs, uh, this typically requires some kind of intermediate host that can be infected simultaneously with both viruses. So right. In other words, it would have to be susceptible to both a bat virus and a human virus. And when that happens, when these viruses come into such close proximity within a single host, then they can actually exchange genetic material. And this is random 
because it's random, that means that uh, much of the time the new virus that is made is non-pathogenic. But if the random alterations in that new virus confer an ability to infect, to, to potently infect humans, that's when we can potentially get an outbreak. So it's very difficult to predict because we can't predict what these new mutated viruses are going to look like and when they're going to occur. But with that said, because you mentioned the influenza virus, I should point out virologists will tell you that, in fact, the virus that's probably most dangerous, more dangerous than the coronavirus, is the influenza virus. And the reason is, is because the influenza virus is much more prone to mutation than the coronaviruses. Right. So, so, that, so the fact is, we have to be very mindful, not just of, of potentially patho- new pathogenic coronaviruses appearing in the future, but also the influenza viruses. In fact, we deal with them on a year-by-year basis, and the concern is that in, in any given flu season, we could have emerging, and the reason why we have to deal with the influenza virus on an annual basis is because it mutates uh, so rapidly. So we actually have new strains every winter. That's yes. why we have to keep vaccinating every year. That's right. To try and deal with these new strains. And any given year, in any given year, that new strain that emerges could be a potentially very dangerous one. Absolutely. And of course, here in British Columbia, we're already able to go online and start booking our flu shots, uh, which they say should be available. Actually, this coming week, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Brian Byram Bridal with us from the University of Guelph, where he is an associate professor of viral immunology. And he's been talking to us about an article that he and a couple of colleagues have written recently for theconversation.com. This one's called Training Our Immune Systems, Why We Should Insist on a high-quality COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Bridal has uh, talked a little bit about the, the, the nature of the COVID virus and the kind of work that he and his colleagues are doing uh, and has also described in some detail the uh, series of viruses that we have had happen to us to the point where he and his peers are successfully or, or comfortably, and I, I don't even use that word advisedly, Dr. Bridal, but comfortably nonetheless predicting some kind of viral outbreak pretty much every decade going forward based on the patterns what we've, that we've seen emerging uh, in this century so far. And now we're talking about something. We're going to the heart of your article, Dr. Bridal, training our immune systems. And this one immediately causes one to think of the term herd immunity. We know they tried that in Sweden from the get-go with COVID. They just thought, well, let's just get everybody exposed and we'll see what happens versus let's put everybody in under lock and key and uh, we'll deal with the next part of the virus three months from now. How did that work out? Uh, well, well, actually, it's still, I guess, uh, technically an experiment in progress. So um, in Sweden, indeed, they decided not to, go to uh, implement strict lockdown measures when the uh, outbreak or when the pandemic was declared. And they certainly experienced on a per capita basis um they, well they're if you go back historically through their data they are on par with the united states and any of the other countries that suffered the highest uh death rates and um number of hospitalizations due to severe cases of covid-19 in the beginning uh, the, yeah in the beginning with the um uh with it with those sort of lax measures that were in place right and uh so on a per capita basis they're right up there uh, right, right at the moment, it's, I mean, it was looking hopeful for a while that their case rates uh, were dropping substantially now at this point in time, while, while others like in Canada, our case rates are rising quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, and so some were, were predicting, therefore, that maybe they were on their way towards achieving herd immunity. However, they, they've had a blip on the radar screen as well recently where the cases have, have increased. And as a result, they have had to implement some measures that they hadn't implemented earlier on in the pandemic. So essentially, it's, it's still an experiment that's in uh, progress. And, and that's going to be the case for many countries. Um, we're really not going to see exactly where we stand. We're not going to have any idea really how close or how far we are from natural herd immunity until the fog clears after the winter. One of the big problems is we're, we're, what's coming upon us. We're, we're really just on the, the verge of the, the cold and flu season. That's right. And that is going to overwhelm our testing facilities. And um, we're, there's going to be so much testing that's going to have to go on. And so many people having to go into self-isolation because they uh, have, have symptoms or signs that can't be differentiated from COVID-19. Right. Um, that, that we're really going to have to wait until our system is no longer overwhelmed towards mid-spring and into the summer. And once that fog clears, then we're really going to start, I, I hope, getting a good idea of how close or how far we are from achieving that natural herd immunity. Dr. Bridal, when the Swedes decided to take this route, the rest of the world, at least a lot of the rest of the world, gasped in horror and declared the experiment to be both naive and unscientific. Do you agree? Uh, it's, well, it's an interesting question. Again, as a scientist, you know, I rely on the data and so they did make a decision, of course, without uh, any data present. But that was that was kind of the point as well. Exactly. Is, is I guess you could yeah, you could argue that that they didn't have any data to suggest that their approach uh, was not a, a logical one. Um, certainly, as you said, the world was aghast when they when they uh, declared they were going to take that approach. Yep. Indeed, the United Kingdom as well suggested at one point that they might try it. Uh, but because of of their sort of worldwide reaction to what Sweden had declared, they they followed. Uh, sort of the lead that uh, the U.S. and Canada had decided to adopt. And uh, at the end of the day, it's, again, we'll have to wait and see what, the, what, uh, what happens over time. So right, right at the moment, because they've had an increase in cases, again, we don't know if that is going to be a prolonged and continuing increase in cases. In other words, are they experiencing a, a second wave? Or, or is it just a blip on the radar screen and it's quickly going to settle back down again? Mm-hmm. Because arguably, if they do experience a second wave, and, and again, it's as severe or more severe than what other countries are experiencing, then one would argue that it's likely a failed experiment. Um, but if, if the case rates settle down again, it, it may be. One of the things I point out in Canada that I think is, is uh, very promising, in fact, Despite the fact that our case rates have been escalating now uh, quite consistently for a couple of weeks, our, the death rate in Canada uh, hasn't been following that same trend. Good point. I mean, we, we did have a day, there was a, a few days ago, we had quite a big blip on our radar screen in terms of the death statistics. But overall, most days, even though the case rates have been skyrocketing, the death rates are still only around uh, four to five Canadians dying directly from COVID-19 right. on, on many of these days. So that in and of itself might suggest, uh, but again, I, I would say this with great caution because we have to see what the long-term data look like, but it might suggest that we are starting to approach a point where uh, you know, again, I hate to use this term because I don't want to seem uh, uncaring, but, but you know, what happens naturally with these kind of pandemics is, is it's literally, without the presence of a vaccine, and we're dealing with having to live with a virus naturally, 
it, it does drive kind of this survival of the fittest um, outcome. Mm-hmm. And if, so if case rates are rising and death rates don't follow suit, at least to the same degree, it, it starts to suggest that, that our most susceptible, the most susceptible in our population may have already experienced the worst of this. And what we're dealing with may be uh, spreading through the, the rest of the population that's not as susceptible to the severe cases of the disease that cause death. And, um, and in fact, one of the things as a scientist, I'll tell you, one of the most frustrating things for me right now is hearing the term case. Yes. I, I, I really hate hearing the term case. I really think we need to start, uh, we need at our testing centers, to start getting the proper information to be able to define a case more specifically. We know now that there are asymptomatic cases. And, what that, and just to, to point out what that means, asymptomatic means the person has been infected with the SARS coronavirus 2, right. but has not developed the disease. Exactly. Now, what's interesting, we refer to the SARS coronavirus as a pathogen. A pathogen is only a pathogen if it causes a disease. Mm -hmm. So in the asymptomatic individuals, you can actually argue that for those people, the SARS coronavirus 2 is not a pathogen because it has not caused disease. That's important. Secondly, uh, we need to differentiate the, the symptomatic cases into three categories, those that are mild, moderate, and severe. And really, the ones that we need to be fearful of are the severe cases. Sure. Those are the ones that require hospitalization, and those are the ones that are at risk of uh, death. And that's the information that we really need to start answering the, the questions that you're asking, kind of what is, where are we headed with this? Mm-hmm. What, what are the prospects ahead for us? Because, I, again, the data, when you see the, deaths, the death rate uh, flatline, but the case rates increase, that's suggestive that most of those cases that we're seeing, even though it seems scary that they're rising, but they may be more uh, mild or moderate uh, cases. And, and of course, we do not, because we are over, our test centers are overwhelmed already and are going to be even more overwhelmed come the cold and flu season, we really don't have any idea, a good idea in Canada, of how many people have actually been infected but were asymptomatic, meaning it wasn't actually a disease-causing virus for those people. It's interesting, Dr. Bridal. I'm, I'm afraid I'm out of time, sir, and I'm very grateful for yours, uh, oh, and I'm a little frustrated you're expressing some of your frustrations as a scientist. One of my frustrations as a host at the moment is I have to end the conversation, so can we uh, make a date to come back, have you come back and, and ca- carry on with this conversation because this is so important and you, you have a delight way of taking this very complex science and explaining it in a very understandable uh, civilian way. And we do appreciate the time you've taken to and the patience you've demonstrated to share your knowledge with us this morning, Dr. Bridle. It's been a real pleasure, sir. And I'd love to be able to have this conversation with you again a few weeks from now as oh, we yeah, learn more. Happy. Yeah, I'd be happy to chat uh, further, for sure. And thank you very much for having me on, Sterling. It's our pleasure, sir. Dr. Byram Bridal joining us from the School of uh, Pathobiology and the University of Guelph, one of North America's leading veterinary colleges, among many other things. Six in ten Canadians are more worried about fraud today than ever before. This from a new survey from the people at Interact, which does go on to say, we Canadians need to improve our fraud literacy. Hmm, what exactly is that all about? Well, we've asked Rachel Jolicoeur, Director of Fraud Prevention and Partnerships at Interact, to join us this morning to do some a little interpreting of the data they've discovered on their latest survey. Ms. Jolicoeur, Rachel, good morning, and thanks for joining us today. 
Good morning, Sterling, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's uh, Thanksgiving weekend. It's nice of you to give us a, few, a little bit of your time, Rachel. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this survey. First of all, obviously, this is fresh stuff, and 62% of us say we're concerned more now than ever before about fraud. Do we zoom in on any particular types of fraud, or is it just the concept of being ripped off? <laughs> well, I think I think just being victimized by either fraud or just being a, uh, at a risk of cybersecurity attack is of concern. It is top of mind, I think, for the majority of Canadians. Uh, I mean, we've been thrusted into this online world, whether we wanted to or not. Yeah. And uh, and and by doing this uh, cybersecurity survey, we did find that uh, in in particular, certain generations are more. Uh, not only susceptible, but also feel less confident about being able to recognize fraud or or a cyber attack. Well, that was very delicately done, Rachel. Congratulations. What you're, okay, may I translate some of that? The older you are, the more likely you are to get ripped off uh, as uh, you are less comfortable uh, in the kind of high-tech environment that some of these real bad guys live in. Uh, is that a reasonable translation? Yes, it is. So, so you... you you brought it out. So yes, seniors are uh, deemed to be more susceptible. Yes, and uh, and through this survey, they do admit the seniors do say that, you know, they they're not. It is not the realm of expertise. They are not necessarily comfortable. Uh, in in many cases, some seniors used to go physically to the bank yes. to make a transaction, and sure. then at one point they were, you know, pushed to to online banking. So yes, uh, because they don't have that experience, they don't feel that uh, they don't feel comfortable, and they do believe that they are at a greater risk of attack. Indeed. Well. And now, you also talked about in the survey, the, the publication of the results uh, indicates that Canadians need to improve our fraud literacy, Rachel. And, and clearly, the older you are, chances are the more likely the degree of improvement required. But fraud literacy crosses all demographics, doesn't it? Yes, that's true. So there's, uh, you know, there, there, there's two groups, really. So we've talked about the seniors, but there's the Generation Z as well. And by Z, I mean, it's a very broad spectrum. We're talking from age 5 to 24. But if you look at the earlier ages, they were basically driven to online learning at the beginning of COVID. Yep. And that is, uh, is increasing the risk as, as well for being vulnerable. Interesting. Uh, these, these no, you're, yeah, you're, it's these, interesting. These individuals. That, uh, sorry, the, but, but you're talking about both ends of the spectrum. People who are least familiar with this high tech new world we live in, and the other end of the spectrum, Rachel, those who have grown up with nothing but. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Now, now we're talking about for Generation Z. We're talking more about the younger uh age uh, so you know the the ones that are going to school right now right. and there's and then there's the middle one uh which is the millennials and the boomers so they seem to be to be a bit more familiar with online yes. however there's other risk associated to that as well what do you know about how many of us get conned some way get ripped off to the tune of not maybe a lot of money or maybe too much money but how many of us are victims of fraud and cyber crime on an annual basis do you know that rachel 
I couldn't tell you specific numbers. Now, mind you, I do work in the uh, the fraud world, so uh, no one really calls me up to let me know that they haven't been victimized. So I might have a bit of a skewed uh, perception on that, but there are more than ever uh, a huge increase in in scams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the environment is is making it ripe for the cyber criminals to take advantage of, uh, of us, of Canadians. And we have to also keep in mind, phishing is the number one vulnerability right now. Right. And let's so talk about... That means that... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I just... If we're going to stop and, and talk about things that are, are way up there and something that everyone needs to be aware of and know about, we're talking about... Let's talk about phishing, P-H, phishing. What is that and how do people avoid being victimized by it? So phishing is uh, is basically it could come in the form of uh, different channels. So it could be via email. Uh, we could also seeing via like we call it smishing, which is SMS text. Uh, and then there's kind of a similar version on the phone. So it's basically a company or an individual that is um, masquerade as uh, an, a legitimate organization right. or individual. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, In some cases, because we've kind of moved to online, I know I've been doing a a lot of online shopping and I will get uh, a notification or an email saying that your package is on its way, but it's been stopped because it needs to validate your credit card. Uh Aha, right, right, right. And then you know you're expecting a package because everybody's been buying online. So then you click on the link and you provide information. And that could be a phishing email. Right. And, the, uh, and of course, we're so used to buying things online yeah, and you can buy your, you know, your purchase tracker when you, when you can, you know, you can get a little number and, and you can follow along and they'll send you emails. It's out for delivery or it's being shipped from Toronto to Vancouver and you can follow the progress. So we're quite accustomed to, to receiving uh, uh, communications about stuff that we've purchased. So if someone sends us a notice, Rachel, and says, oh, your parcel's been held up because we've lost your information so if you'll just give us your credit card number and this and that and the other thing uh, then we can release it it's here at the center we just need to refresh your information and you'll go well here sure you go here well and you don't even think twice about it do you exactly so because we're starting to be used to this new this new environment our guards are down mm-hmm. and when somebody is asking us for some some information and it could be banking information it could be personal information because now the cyber criminals are being more patient and they are also mining information they're not asking outright what your credit card information uh, is or your account password what they're asking is oh we need to validate a few information what's your address right what's your name and then with that information, and they'll send you a couple more uh, phishing emails, and they're going to ask you different information, but they're all going to link it in the back end, and that will give them a complete uh, profile of you and will able to you know, create some kind of fraud later on in the future. So right now, we're not, we're, we're, we think that cyber criminals are collecting all this great information on individuals for use at a later time. So this is why, you know, Cybersecurity Month is extremely 
extremely important, but also the rest of the year, the 11 months that we're not really talking about it, we need to be vigilant. Rachel Jolicoeur joining us from Toronto. Ms. Jolicoeur is with Interac, and she is uh, the Director of Fraud Prevention and Partnerships with Interac. And uh, their survey, the Interac Fraud Prevention Index, is out. This is Cybersecurity Month across Canada. Rachel points out that 62% of Canadians say, uh, well, yes, we're more concerned now than ever before. Uh, about fraud and being a victim of fraud. The good news is there's one other number here, Rachel. 71% of Canadians who responded to your survey, even more than who, uh, than who admit to being concerned about fraud, 71% say, you know, I really do need to learn a whole lot more about dealing with fraud so I won't become a victim. At least we know that it's out there and many of us are doing our darndest not to get caught up in it. That's encouraging. Yes, that is good news. Uh, we It is two out of three Canadians have taken steps to educate themselves on cybersecurity risks. However, it is, uh, I think I mentioned this before, it is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Staying ahead of criminals is not an easy feat. So just, I think there's a few things that people can do, but there's always, you always have to be on the lookout. They're going to come at you in different ways that you don't expect it. And even just, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, yesterday, I was selling an article online and someone contacted me and they said, I can't make it right now, but I'll send you half of the money and uh, and I'll come and pick it up later. So I thought, okay, you know, still I have a bit of my spidey senses on, but okay. okay. And they sent me an intrackey transfer link, uh, but it wasn't a legitimate link. So what it was, it was, as I, I talked about before, it was a phishing. So they wanted me to click and provide information. Now, I know how e-transfer works. It's a very secure system. Sure. They're not asking for personal information. But in this case, when I clicked on the link, it was asking me for um, for, for information that I shouldn't be be given out. So, you know, that's just another way that these criminals are, 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 are finding to try to trick us into providing them with, uh, with our confidential information. And it's interesting. They went right after the director of fraud prevention. Of course, they don't care. It's all random. I mean, these blinking robo calls that we get, uh, we average, I think in our household, Rachel, we get at least one a day. That's a phishing expedition. Uh, the emails, uh, uh, the robo calls, uh, you know, you look at the thing and if they're, you, you can't identify the number, we, we don't ever answer. Uh, but now they're getting more clever. It's not a one eight six six number anymore. It's a local area code and a local seven digit number that looks like it could be the person across the street. Um, but again, no name. It just looks a lot more local. So uh, they're getting more and more sophisticated. And here we are many, many months into the pandemic, in which time a lot of people with, uh, well, say, shall we say negative career paths have really had a lot of time to focus their strategies and take advantage of a lot of people. So uh, let's talk a little bit. We got a few minutes here, about three or four. Let's talk about the, some of the prevention methods that are part of cyber security month and that you at interact are most particularly interested in having us know about so let's let's start with stop how about that one yes so stop and think so when you receive a phone call an email a text were you expecting it 
Is it someone that you know, or is it someone that's just sending you some information and was it expected? So, mm-hmm. you know, and then the second one is like scrutinize it. Think about it a little bit more. Are they, is it someone, even if they know you, is it someone that's trying to send you money that doesn't owe you any money? Well, that's a bit strange. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Sterling, but I don't have people just, you know, random, uh, randomly giving me money. <laughs> so I think you got to think about it a little bit more. On that's that for one. sure. So and that, then thirdly, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's, that's true. It's just that when someone, I mean, it's, it's the old axiom, isn't it, Rachel? If it sounds too good to be true, chances are it is. That's correct. And that's, that's really the best advice. If it's too good to be true, it probably is a scam. All right. And then thirdly, I'd say, you know what, go to the source. If it's someone that you know that's sending you money or sending you a link or a video that you weren't expecting, call them. Find a different medium than the way that they originally communicated with you. Right. And if they sent you an email, then call them or text them and just validate that information. And that should cover you for... 99% of all scams out there. And, and uh, of course, the more uh, money are, uh, that's at stake, the more urgency associated to verifying the request, the source of the request for said funds. And the more digging you do, uh, the more likely you are to discover that this is an illegitimate request. That is correct on in some cases. However, we've seen that criminals are asking for lower amounts now, uh-huh. which we're more likely or less likely to scrutinize mm-hmm. and more likely to send that money. So they adjust uh, much quicker than we do. And all they want, of course, is a foot in the door. Once they get uh, the information and cash flowing, and it doesn't even matter what amount, that's a door that's open to them for future, isn't it? That's correct. And uh, so let's uh, take a look at the fraud prevention line. The the RCMP and the national government have this uh, Canadian anti-fraud center. And I wonder, uh, uh, you know, we, we talk about it with the Better Business Bureau, with people like yourself, Rachel, year after year. And I wonder, do you have any knowledge or percentage of how many Canadians on an annual basis who do get burned by the bad guys actually take the time to call the cops and go, you know, I'm a little embarrassed, I feel a little stupid, but I've just been ripped off. I don't have exact numbers, but I do know that it's a very small percentage of victims that actually reported to the police or to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. And that's where it's really important to emphasize the more that it's reported, the more that law enforcement knows about it, uh, the more resources they'll be able to allocate towards this problem. And I think part of the lack of uh, reporting is the fact that we do feel a little sheepish. Gosh, uh, how, how how dumb could I have been? I should have seen that one coming a mile away. But it's not always that easy. They're pretty slick and pretty sophisticated, aren't they, Rachel? They're good at their job the same way that we're all good at our own job. And they practice a lot. So, yes, they are excellent. All the results of the survey, the uh, Internet, the Interact Fraud Prevention Index and survey is available, friends, at their website, interact.ca. And the director of fraud prevention at Interact is Rachel Jolicare in Toronto. Rachel, thanks for this. We appreciate your time on Thanksgiving weekend very much. Good of you to join us. Thank you, Sterling. 
Have a great Thanksgiving. Well, the same to you. The federal government this week on Wednesday through the Environment Minister announced a ban on six single-use plastic items. Grocery bags, straws, stir sticks, six-pack rings, cutlery, and hard-to-recycle foodware by the end of 2021. The uh, plastic industry and the people uh, involved in the plastic industry say uh, that's a bit of an overreach. In fact, they're quite unhappy about it. And here to talk about it from the the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada is their Vice President Plastics Division, Elena Mantegaris, joining us from Toronto. Ms. Mantegaris, Elena, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. And the the ban, uh, the word I I, re, I I sort of went to when I heard about it, even before I heard about your reaction, reaction was, well, this sounds like a bit of an overreach. And I think my reaction is kind compared to yours because you're not pleased with this at all. It's the toxicity thing that is driving you most crazy. Is that correct? Well, what I would say is that uh, the federal government is using a tool that uh, not the appropriate tool for the goal. The goal is to manage plastic waste, yes. which we all agree with in the industry. They're actually using a tool under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act that's a criminal law statute. That, uh, that is not appropriate at all. What we're urging the federal government to do is focus, uh, instead of on bans, is to actually focus on putting in place a circular economy for plastics. And we think there are much better tools available to do that. Well, it's interesting you would use the phrase circular economy. This is, of course, where the government is uh, very much uh, already uh, in its mindset in terms of where they want to take a lot of the economy going forward. But to use your example, uh, as it stands right now, the implementation of this ban would suggest the reinforcement of the notion that pollution of any description is a crime. Therefore, the criminal code attachment to the ban. Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know that I can uh, interpret all of uh, what they've done in that way exactly. But what I would say is that the spirit of what we're all trying to achieve is to make sure that we're no longer having a discussion about single-use plastics anymore. That with a circular economy, our, our, our focus shifts to reuse. And then there would be no debate at all about whether something should be banned or not, because it would be continuously reused in the economy. Right. Now, our industry has been working hard to advance the technology that would enable that. So right now we have a lot of mechanical recycling systems, right? They kind of go to a depot, they get sorted. Mm -hmm. And the easy stuff to sort out is often, if you will, the plastic uh, bottles, uh, water or pop, etc., And those are really, there's an excellent recycling system in place for a lot of that. I think it's about 75% of all of that is already recycled. Right. The other plastic items need what we call advanced recycling technology, where we're actually taking the plastic back to its molecular basics, and then you can reuse it in any plastic format needed. Right. This is the kind of investment and focus we need from government. Bands are just they're regressive, and they actually take away from our ability to put in place the appropriate recycling systems. Because the more you take plastics out of the system, the more expensive it becomes to put the right technologies in place, scale them up properly, 
and make them work effectively for us. Elena, it strikes me as being a bit uh, sort of counterproductive from the point of view of the government, who is very keen to see uh, the, you know, their green agenda implemented. We're getting hints and more hints as the days go by of what they have up their sleeves. But the certainly the circular economy is very much at the front of, uh, of all of their discussions. And they're also talking about $10 billion set aside specifically for green initiatives. Now, if, if recycling or advancing our capacity to recycle isn't the definition of a green initiative, what is? Well, I'd agree with you there. We think that this is, in fact, this should be a pillar of how we view our, uh, the infrastructure for our society. Recycling is one of the things that we should be building up. Uh, I'm heartened by the fact that uh, the announcement by the minister did have that circular economy framework. What we'd like to see are real investments to help achieve those goals. And we've put forward some ideas. Mm-hmm. We've said, look, we need to focus on um, not eliminating plastic, but rather look at how we design plastic products so that we build recyclability right into it from the front end so that we know these plastics can be recycled. As I mentioned already, we need support to advance what are currently pilot projects on advanced recycling technologies to get to get them to the point where we can replicate them and make them common infrastructure across the country. And then we also need efforts to actually create an end market for recycled plastic. Sure. So right now, it's more expensive for a brand owner, for example, to buy recycled plastic content and include that in their, in their actual products. It's cheaper for them to buy what we call virgin plastic. Mm. Well, we need to create an equal playing field then. So if we really want a circular economy and we really want plastics to be recycled, well, we should uh, start establishing standards around what percentage of recycled plastic content needs to be in products. So the good news is that industry is already thinking about this and is urging government to work with us to actually advance right. what I think is a more visionary approach than bans. Right. And, and I have a quote from you on Global News. That's reputational damage to a sector suddenly calling it a toxic, calling it toxic. That's just not fair game. That was attributed to you by our Global Newsroom in Toronto. Accurate quote? Well, I did say that, absolutely. What I am heartened by, however, and this is very good news, is that Minister Wilkinson has signaled to the industry that he is open to a discussion on changing the nomenclature to Schedule 1 of of that act that I mentioned, SEPA, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. So we are very much looking forward to working with Minister Wilkinson to address industry's concerns around the naming of this schedule and also really urging him to shift that focus of attention from bans, which I don't think help us accomplish the goals we really have as a society, and really show leadership in advancing circular economy for plastic. Well, that's interesting stuff. Sorry, go ahead. And I just want to say, you know, the good news is that British Columbia is actually a leader in this space. I mean, if there's one model of a province that's starting and has been doing it right for a while, it's BC. You guys have a harmonized recycling system across the province. Yep. In contrast, in other jurisdictions, you can have every single municipality that has a different recycling system. So you actually have hundreds of different systems with no consistency across them. So it's impossible for industry to actually scale up any kind of meaningful approach to recycling. We have industry willing and ready 
to take the model in BC and expand a lot of that out across the country, willing to pay for recycling and manage recycling, willing to have discussions around, um, you know, percentages of of recycled plastic content, looking to make the investments already and build on further investments in those advanced recycling technologies. So we're there, we're ready to do it. And we actually look to that BC model as, as something that should be replicated further across. Yeah, and Wilkinson's a BC guy. He should be open to that sort of thing as well. Elena, thank you for this. It's great to speak to you. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to give uh, some kind of uh, a moment to, to uh, the industry to respond to uh, a, 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 a sounded a lot uh, like overreach to me, and clearly this is not over, uh, but we appreciate your stating the opening position this time around, Elena. Thank you for joining us, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you very much, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners. There's, bye-bye. There, bye-bye now. Elena Mantegaris, Vice President, Plastics Division with the Chemistry Industry Association of Canada. 85,000 jobs in the plastics sector alone. Rob Williams joins us. Rob is the sports editor with the Daily Hive here in Vancouver, and he is uh, very well known to CKNW listeners since he first joined us on the weekends a couple of years ago. Good morning, Rob. Hey, Sterling, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm looking at the story you filed at uh, dailyhive.com. This is the part I didn't hear last night, Rob, as we were following the free agency and all of that stuff. I got sidetracked onto Jeopardy and a few other things and completely lost track, so I did not know until I woke up this morning that Chris Tanev is no longer a Vancouver Canuck. We knew about Markstrom. That was fairly early in the day yesterday. Tanev was on the bubble and very iffy and lots of chatter. What uh, what was the deal breaker that saw Chris leave Vancouver and head across the Rockies to join Markstrom in Calgary? Yeah, uh, that was one of the last deals of the day uh, last night. And uh, I, I think <laughs> I think Canucks fans are having a bit of a tough time with it. I now. sure am. Yeah, I mean, Tanev had, had uh, played 10 years in, with the Canucks, um, you know, been an absolute warrior for them. Uh, you know, uh, not a flashy player by any means, but uh, but definitely an important player, um, you know, willing to jump in front of any puck, um, you know, put, put his body on the line mm-hmm. and, and uh, did absolutely everything he could uh, uh, as a Canuck and, and uh, you know, you know, a class act off the ice as well. Sure. Um, so yeah, the 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 consider the, the trouble the Canucks are in right now is is they've spent too much money on too many, um, you know, third and fourth line players and 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 even players that they they've had as healthy scratches and and parked in the minors. Um, they spent not wisely in the last number of years, and now they're and they're, this is the year where they're paying for it. Where now they're they're tight towards the cap. They don't have a ton of money to spend, so they have to be really careful with every dollar that they spend now. Right. Um, and and I think that that's, that's um, resulted in Tanev and Markstrom going to free agency. And the contracts that the Flames uh, gave, I, I think, will probably be regrettable for Calgary in, in um, you know, two, three, four years. I think they might regret some of those deals um, because of the ages of these players. They're both now into their 30s, and they, uh, you know, Markstrom signed to a six-year deal, which is a long time, and, and Chris Tanner signed to a four-year deal worth 4.5 million. And the Canucks essentially were offering about half the half the length of the contract, ah. uh, and and at less money reportedly was uh, four four million a year, so just a little bit less, but 
but the key was the the term the, giving giving four years to Tanev was something the Canucks were not willing to do. Right, and it was the same with Markstrom. You knew, and we knew, we all knew about Markstrom. He was looking for a job for a while. He wanted a long term deal with some pretty sweet dollars attached to it, but it was mostly about term. So you're right. The 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 Flames offered him six years, which is exactly what he was after, and the kind of coin and that was pretty sweet as well. But Tanev got four years from Calgary. What would the Canucks max uh, offered him they, two years deal with that that might have been what the the Canucks could have gone to yeah I mean, the report that's out there right now uh, says that the, the Canucks were willing to do a two-year deal worth four million so so half the, the length of contract and, uh, and less money. The, the, the number that they were willing to go to was four million and whereas the Flames would go to 4.5. I think Tanner probably, you know, he, he likes it in Vancouver, and I think he probably would have taken a little bit less money. Right. But, but the, the, the contract length, like, I can understand why he would go for this, because in two years' time, he's not going to be nearly as uh, as marketable. So this is really, and, and Markstrom, um, to a certain extent as well, this is this is their time to cash in, um, you know, to, to, oh, to absolutely. do a, a short-term deal and, and wait. They, you know, they might have to settle for a lot less money in a couple of years. So so it made sense for them. And I, I think that, you know, this is where, um, you know, Cuck's GM, Jim Benning, has been criticized over the years. And it hasn't really come home to roost until now. It's... It's signing the players like Jay Beagle and and uh, Louis Erickson and Antoine Roussel and and Sven Berchi and these are players that you know have provided some value over the years but they're not worth nearly the, what their contracts right. are and these are players that are playing on the fourth line and and uh, in some cases not playing at all and earning uh, big dollars so so that's that's the issue I I think but. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of other options right now in free agency, and it's, it's, it's you know it's twenty twenty, so it's a weird year. It sure is a weird so, year. So, Rob, so, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about Brayton Holdby in a second. But who are they who are they looking for? They need Chris Tanev is a tough tough act to follow, and they're going to need somebody that's rugged and dependable and steady, who's going to probably want to get nicely paid. So, there are a lot of free agents still out there floating around. Do you see any dots that you connect can connect from the list of available defensemen that Vancouver might be able to, A, afford, and B, be interested in? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you that they need that type of defenseman. I, I think they need a defenseman that can that can play against the other team's top lines, just as, as Tanev had done for years. Uh, the name right now that they're being linked to is Tyson Berry. They've okay. Linked to him. They've talked to him for um, a number of years. He's not that type of defenseman. He's an offensive defenseman. Um, and he's from Victoria and played last year with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yep. So that's the name that, that people are linking to the class. I don't know that that necessarily makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, one of the names that I think makes a bit more sense is uh, Travis Hamanick out of uh, yeah, ironically yeah. be a little swap of because uh, he's with uh, Calgary. Uh, he's a right shot defenseman, so he, he, that's that's the side where the Canucks need help. And uh, you know he is all of those things that you just mentioned. You know, rugged, tough, big defenseman that that uh, has, has played tough minutes and, and played against the other team's top line during his career. Mm-hmm. He's on the wrong side of thirty as well, though. So that's the that's the the rub that they need to not. Uh, commit to too many dollars and, and, and end up in uh, another situation where they're paying a, a player uh, too much money. 
Let's talk about Braden Holtby. Uh, when I first heard about him coming to replace Markstrom, I thought, okay. Um, I don't know. I, I followed him, of course, with the Washington Capitals. He has a Stanley Cup ring from that experience. But my best memories of Brayton Holtby are as a member of Team Canada. And he's a Saskatchewan boy whom I'm sure is delighted to be coming back home to Canada to, to finish out his career. And he'll be a great influence in the dressing room, say the management, and a, a, a good mentor for young Mr. Demko. What, what do you make of the deal? Absolutely. Apparently, he's already uh, one of the first things he did was was he got uh, Thatcher Demko's uh, phone number and, and wanted to get in contact with him. And, and he spoke yesterday with the media saying that he wanted to have a good relationship with, with Demko. And, um, you know, he's all about, you know, nearly every question he answered was, was it's all about winning winning games. Right. So that's what you, you want to hear. Uh Holtby is a really interesting case because he's he's only 31, yeah. which is but that sometimes can be a, a bit of a danger age in the NHL where some players can hang on well into their 30s, especially other goalies. Players, yeah, and other players, you know, start to drop off. So Holtby, I mean, his resume is is pretty impressive. He's he's won a Vezina Trophy. He was a runner up for a Vezina Trophy the year after, and he's won a Stanley Cup. The, the the only thing with, with Holtby is his numbers went from being like like amazing like over nine twenty save percentage, which is that's sort of a, a line where that's a really impressive number for a goaltender in the NHL. Um, that's he hasn't reached that level since twenty seventeen. And his numbers have really dropped and last year was his worst year mm-hmm, in the yeah. league statistically. So he's coming off uh, not a very good good year. Now, can does that have to do with how how Washington played in front of him? But then you would say Washington's defense is better than Vancouver's defense. So I think one of the things that the Canucks are banking on is Ian Clark, the goaltending coach. That's right. Has uh, you know he's he, he's been able. He's a bit of a goaltending uh, whisperer, I think. <laughs> and uh, what he did with Jacob Markstrom to really turn him into a uh, a top-level goalie. And hopefully he can enjoy the same success with Braden Holtby. I have to leave it there, Rob. I'm out of time, unfortunately, and I'm always grateful for yours. Always a kick to have you on the program. And the latest, by the way, on Chris Tenev and Rob's take on it is available right now at dailyhive.com. Rob, thanks. We'll talk again soon. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.